0: Welcome to Ipsi-Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Talid Al-Sabawi, Assistant Professor of Law at Elon University School of Law. We will discuss her draft article, A Model for Defunding, an Evidence-Based Statute for Behavioral Health Crisis Response, which is co-authored with Jennifer J. Carroll. So welcome to the show, Talid.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Brian.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm really excited to have you on, especially because this article is so incredibly timely. Uh and I imagine a lot of listeners are familiar with the problem that you're addressing. But I, I wonder if you could kind of lay it out in your own terms for people. Like What problem are you trying to deal with in this article? What problem are you thinking about? And are there particular triggers that made you think that this was something that really needed to be addressed?
1: Sure. So I was approached uh, about a year ago by the Homeless Union of Greensboro, Um, and they came to me because they know that I had moved to North Carolina and that I was a mental health and addiction policy uh, expert, and one of their associates had uh, had died as a result of the use of a restraint at the hands of police officers, and and the person, his name is Marcus Dion Smith. He was a person with a mental illness and a person who was under the influence of of a controlled substance at the time of his death. And, you know, if you, I started reading through the transcripts and looking at it and, and his death was very much preventable. Um, The restraints that were used, they were not the type, they weren't needed. Um, He was asking for help um, from officers. He wasn't combative, or anything like that. So, it really drove me to look to alternatives to police responses when it specifically when it comes to behavioral health crises. So, crises that involve substance use or that are a result of a mental illness. And eventually I broadened that to also include responses to um to issues that arise when somebody is homeless or houseless, um, loitering. Uh, What I started to think about what alternatives could be used if, if communities didn't want to call the police, but wanted to get help for someone. And so that's when I was introduced to the CAHOOTS model, which is used in Eugene, Oregon, and it's received... Uh, quite a bit of publicity of late because there's a lot of cities patterning their responses off of cahoots, and um, I so as I've developed this uh, this policy proposal, I interviewed the folks at cahoots to figure out what they were doing, what they thought they did right, what problems have arisen over the years, and and how they responded to these. Um, to, to behavioral health crises. And so just a quick overview, the CAHOOTS model is that they're dispatched from, so the 911 operator um, dispatches CAHOOTS instead of police for certain, um, for wellness checks, for behavioral health crises, for issues of houselessness. And CAHOOTS goes out with a, EMT, you know, an emergency medical professional, um, and a trained mental health crisis counselor that is trained in humane de-escalation methods. And through with, so this that's the response team is two people. Um, they go out into the community and they they help the person in need connect them to services. Uh, they are not. Um they they don't focus on involuntarily committing the person. It is a much more um, empowered approach to how persons who have a behavioral health problems are um, are kind of dealt with. And so so I took this model, I took cahoots as a model, and I spoke to a lot of groups. In Greensboro, because we were designing this solution, particularly for Greensboro. But I spoke to the Survivor, North Carolina Survivors Union, which is the um, drug users union in North Carolina, the homeless union, um, the members of of different uh, criminal justice reform, uh, persons from immigrant communities, persons who were formerly incarcerated, to try to get their perspective on what the model act should include so that it was com- as community-centered and person-centered as possible. Because you know, my co-author, Jennifer Carroll, and I were, were concerned we didn't want this to turn into another form of institutionalization where, you know, so we have police going out and institutionalizing folks into prisons. We didn't want this to then become another in- we're institutionalizing folks into um, the mental health, into mental health hospitals, or, or or whatnot. So, so we spoke to all these different groups, and you know, we came up with. We were also faced with different socio political environment in North Carolina than it is in in Oregon. Um, we don't have at our disposal a white bird clinic, which. Um, which they had in uh, in Eugene Oregon. White Bird Clinic is a a federally qualified health center that has been around at least since uh, I think the eighties, if not not earlier than the eighties. Um, and you know they have a lot of social support that is tied to the white bird clinic and in the area in Eugene where they can connect people to social services. And, and we don't have that uh, that same level of support here in North Carolina. And so we added an additional element to the CAHOOTS model, which is that we wanted to have a person with lived experience who was a non-professional with lived experience, on the crisis response team. And so our version of the CAHOOTS model is one where uh, there is this additional actor. The reasons we put that person on there was again because we didn't want any co-option that took place where um, provider groups or others may come in and try to use this as a way to coerce people. So it was really important to have that person with lived experience there. And we also tried to build in protections at our places.
0: Well, my understanding is in a lot of communities, these problems are addressed or maybe not addressed by the police. Why do you think using the police to deal with mental health crises is maybe not the best approach, and you know, couldn't we use additional training for police to help them deal with people in mental crises more effectively?
1: Yeah, so you know before we wrote this the paper that accompanies the the Model Act um, or the model law, Professor Carroll and I didn't really understand the evidence base. Uh, in this area. And and after doing extensive research for this paper, we came to realize that there is no empirical evidence that supports the idea that police officers, even with training, are equipped to handle a behavioral health crisis. Um, And so all of the, we go over a lot of the specifics in the paper, but essentially It is not good for the officer, nor is it good for the person in crisis. So the officer um, is more likely to experience um, mental health issues themselves from having to deal with crises like that. They report not wanting to deal with these behavioral health crises. And even when they're trained to do so, it doesn't improve any of the outcomes that we look at. Um, like use of excessive force, um, any um, injuries that are caused or or even uh, better outcomes as far as the the person in crisis is concerned. so there's there's no evidence base that even with training officers will uh, will respond to these crises as well and it's also not good for their health. now a lot of the popular solution or the popular um, response has been interdisciplinary partnerships and that is where they send out a police officer with a, a person who you know a, a mental health crisis counselor or a psychiatrist or a nurse or um, and they they go out together to address the problem or maybe the officer goes out first. "Quote unquote," clears the scene, and then the uh, the healthcare professional comes in, and this type of model has been likened to more of a outpatient model, where we're just bringing the healthcare system to the patient. But it also it that model doesn't address the issues of restraint that result when the officer is the first one who approaches the problem. Also, when the officer is there first, it increases the likelihood that the person with the behavioral health crisis will be injured or even killed. And so, and there is no evidence base to support that these interdisciplinary partnerships actually improve outcomes. Uh, it was a political reason as to why they became the popular response, uh, not a scientific, um, there's no scientific backing for it.
0: So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the origin of the CAHOOTS model that you talk about and maybe offer like an anecdote or an example about how it can work more effectively than the alternative police-based models that are more common?
1: Sure. So so like I alluded to a little bit before, CAHOOTS came about at really... So first we had the Whiteberg Clinic in Eugene, Oregon, and they became a very trusted part of the community. Um, they were a place where if people had a bad trip you know, they could go and wait it out in a safe, non-judgmental environment. Um, they also evolved over the years to offer different services. They have been likened by people that I have interviewed that live in the Eugene area as those really nice hippies that will just show up to a rave and put a warm blanket over you if you're having a bad trip, right? So that's. What their crisis response team looks like. Um, so, CAHOOTS is a crisis response team program that developed and is a part of the White Bird Clinic, but it is located actually under the Eugene Police Department. So, it they CAHOOTS is on contract with the police department. But they assured me when I interviewed them that they their operation they're very much in control of their operations, and so so they have a a very they built a relationship with the community where they are trusted, and officers will even call them up to come in and handle um, behavioral health crisis situations or housing uh, crises because. The officers, they may show up, and there is much that they could do, and it's not that the officer does not want to help, but they're not equipped with the tools in which to help the person so um so yeah, the best I guess the best anecdote was the one that I just gave you, which which was um, that they're yeah they're they're the ones that put the the warm blanket over you and give you something to drink when you're having a bad trip um, and how that would look different if a police officer responded. Right. And, and if, you know, you could, I was very, I went through with painstaking detail, a description of what happened to Marcus Dion Smith in the beginning of the paper to demonstrate what the encounters look like when it's law enforcement, as opposed to when it's a mental, a trained mental health provider.
0: Well, so I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit, because I found that a really powerful part of the paper and a way of sort of making concrete how it would be different if we had people who were trained to deal with people in a crisis as opposed to police officers who are trained to deal with really different kinds of situations.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Do you mind if I read a little bit of a little excerpt of it?
0: Be my crest. Yeah.
1: Sure. Okay. So Mr. Smith approached the officers and asked for help. Please, sir. Please help me, sir. Mr. Smith begged the officers. They're going to kill me. I want to go to the hospital. Bossman and officer responded. You need to chill out. The officers put Mr. Smith into the back of a squad car. This confinement further agitated Mr. Smith, who began banging on the squad car's window. He's just bugging out on something, an officer said. The officers then decided that they would rip-hobble him, using a restraint that's been identified by the Department of Justice as one that can interfere with an individual's ability to breathe. Even the manufacturers of the device used to hogtie Mr. Smith clearly state that it should never be used to hogtie a prisoner. But yet hogties are used and are still um, are still being used by the Greensboro Police Department. Anyway, so nevertheless, the police officers pulled Mr. Smith out of the car. I ain't resisting, Mr. Smith pled. But officers hogtied him anyway. After the restraint was in place, the officers realized that Mr. Smith was no longer breathing. Mr. Smith died after being transported to the hospital. So that is a not wholly unusual uh, case of what happens when police officers are the ones that respond to these. So Part of the problem can be restraining a person who is in crisis. And restraining them improperly uh, to doing things that escalate the um, the psychotic break or the bad trip. Um, just last week, we had another person in Greensboro that um, died uh, in law enforcement custody who was, and, and there is, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say there also isn't a racial component to this, um, right, that this person was in the custody of police. They knew that this, they knew this person was intoxicated, but they stuck them in, you know, kind of like a drunk tank, right? Um, and the person died because the law enforcement has only certain tools at their disposal. They have restraints, they have handcuffs and they have jail cells. They have their squad cars. And that's not how we should be treating a healthcare issue. Right. And so, it's about replacing people who have been trained to, um, to to look for and anticipate risks and threats with people who have been trained to de-escalate persons who are having psychotic breaks or having bad trips or who just need a place to go and have no place to go and so are, you know, like people who are um, houseless, who have the police called on them because, you know, they have no other place to go and are just loitering, right? What is a police officer going to do but put them in a jail cell? So what we're arguing is that we need to rethink the responsibilities that we've given law enforcement and stop using law enforcement as a stopgap for our, um, our lack of social services. And in, in looking at this, an easy, an easy responsibility to chunk off is behavioral health care, I mean, behavioral health crises.
0: So what are the specific skill sets that people with experience in uh, behavioral healthcare could bring to these problems? And how should we know when they should be involved as opposed to the police?
1: Yeah. And that's, so that's a great question. And we asked cahoots those questions when we were, um, we were interviewing them. Uh, because you know, we said we've been trying to look and and figure out what a mental health crisis counselor is, or doesn't seem to be any type of accreditation board. What what does that mean? And and they defined it by saying, well, we spend all this time in the field training uh, people on de escalation techniques, and that's how they become a mental health crisis counselor. And our response was like, well, what about if a new city is starting up and they want, you know, they want to know when Kahoot should be called out and how do we train people to become mental health crisis counselors. And so Kahoot actually offers, and we recommend this that uh, they offer consultation services where they will assist new cities uh, or new um, counties in creating a crisis response program and in training their workers and in creating protocols for dispatch and in creating protocols for the folks that are responding. So we recommend that they utilize those services. Um, As far as when CAHOOTS is called out, I think, let me see if I can remember them off the top of my head. I think there are six codes in which they're used. So one has to do with, um, you know, there is a person that is houseless, sleeping, or loitering somewhere. Um, Cahoots gets called a suicide or um, a type of mental health break, um, an issue with a bad trip. Or substance use that has um, that has resulted in a, you know some type of a behavioral issue. On a separate note, we are actually coding right now um, police calls that we have from eighteen different cities, and we have all of the way that the nine one one operators have coded the calls. And we're categorizing them into ones that a crisis response team could respond to versus the police. And we're going to calculate the cost savings. So we're working with an economist on that. So I'm looking, just give me one second. Let me pull up the code book and I can tell you what those six areas are. So according to cahoots, they respond to specific um, specific scenarios that can be categorized into about five different categories. The first is suicide attempts or um or threats to harm oneself. The second is a welfare check. So if um Somebody's worried because somebody uh, they're worrying that maybe somebody is overdosed, they can't get a hold of them. They can call CAHOOTS to respond and reverse overdoses as well. That's another service that the CAHOOTS uh, provides. And overdose reversal, when it's provided by CAHOOTS, save the city a lot of money. Um, and officers, we have. Data that shows that officers do not like being the first responders that um, were responsible for overdose reversals for a number of reasons. So, okay, so that's the welfare check. The next is what they call mental disturbance, and that is a psychotic break or some other um, manic episode, etc. Then citizen assist, so they actually are the ones that respond if somebody needs directions, um, as a flat tire or you know needs to be uh, needs. To so the way Dr. Carroll describes us is, um, if a capable adult who understands the city is needed, right to assist a citizen, then cahoots is called. And then the last is the substance use, which is a, a bad trip on drugs, essentially. So those are the, So then the 911 dispatch will send um, a call over to CAHOOTS and CAHOOTS will respond instead of the police.
0: Well, so I wonder if you could kind of summarize, like, what the ultimate goal of this approach is. I mean, it seems like, to me anyway, reading your paper and thinking about what you're discussing it's sort of like saying there are certain kinds of things that police aren't very good at and maybe we need other people to do things better and differently
1: yeah absolutely so i think a big one of the big focuses or one of our big goals is to decrease police interaction with communities um Particularly vulnerable communities, and to decrease police interactions that are, are going to be more likely to result in unnecessary use of force and even deadly use of force. And in doing that, we also hope to decrease instances of the racial disparities that result from police contact with communities. And so, By critically analyzing what police actually respond to, we can can begin to take away the responsibilities that we have given law enforcement simply because there was no one else to, uh, there was no other system to respond to it and begin to develop thoughtful systems that are evidence based that will improve outcomes and decrease racial disparities.
0: So, Talid, I wonder if, in closing, you could talk about, based on your research, what you think that jurisdictions should consider when thinking about how to create new agencies or organizations or practices, whatever I guess the format would be, that would accomplish these kinds of goals in a more productive and forward-thinking way than we currently do by using kind of police in the penal system?
1: Absolutely. So this paper started off with this question of if we're going to defund the police, what will we do next, right? So there's all these calls to dismantle institutions, but it's equally as important to create new institutions to fill in the gaps that the dismantling the police will cause. And so to do that, we have to think about what kind of institution we want to create. And that institution is going to look different depending on the state, the, um, the local government structure. We've tried to make it so that the law could be customizable to fit some of the unique cultural or political environment. And to do that, we discuss issues about whether or not the crisis response team should be a part of the local government or if it should be like cacutes, contracted out with a private third party. Should the behavioral health crisis response team be under the public safety arm of the local government or should it be under a different department? what will be some threats to the autonomy of a behavioral health crisis team, right? And we talk about how provider groups actually can pose a threat. Um, We also talked about the importance of maintaining some type of uh, control for an advisory board that is made up primarily of community members that has Uh, some control over the operations of the behavioral health crisis teams to make sure that they don't become coercive or they don't become another corrupt institution. So we did our best to try to get uh, by using the experiences that we have had so far in proposing or suggesting these types of reforms in local governments we tried to include some of those issues so that groups can anticipate them and we tried to provide some alternative solutions so that this proposal could be tailored to the needs of the local populations and we've had um, we've had some success so far in dis- disseminating this despite it being um, really new and hot off the press. We've had interest from organizers in Chicago, from organizers in Boston and in North Carolina as well as some in New Mexico, actually. So it, it is there, there's a lot of interest. Um, and so it was really our hopes in doing this. We saw so many grassroots organizations that wanted an alternative crisis response, um, but did not have the political know-how or the understanding of local governments that would allow them to take that idea and translate it into a policy proposal or into a solution that does not get um, co-opted in becoming another, um, another coercive institution. So I really wanted to help equip those grassroots organizations and that's what really motivated us to put this down on paper we wanted to make it available to every grassroots organization to be able to hand to their um to their local governments
0: awesome well it sounds great to me and i hope more cities and counties and And local governments take it up because it really does sound like this could be a much better way to deal with a lot of these problems than what we're currently doing.
1: Thank you. Yes, we hope it gets, we hope it spreads. Your boy with the bebop glasses and the suede shoes. Come here.
0: But, officer, I ain't done nothing.
1: But, officer.
0: But, officer, that is my real name.
1: My real name uh, Officer, I can't get My hands no higher
0: Officer, I can walk A straight line
1: was a straight line.
0: Now look at here officer, will you let me get one word in? Close that door.